6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of James, chapter 1, verses 13 through 27. Well, we're in the second session then of our study of the book of Jacob. Jacob's letter to the 12 tribes. As you probably know, Jacob is Jacobus in Greek, it's Jacques in French, Iago in uh, Italian, Diego in Spanish, Yaakov in Hebrew, and James in English. So you know it as the book of James. There are some that maintain that that was twist anglicized that way on behalf of the translator of the Bible, King James uh, of England. Who knows? Those are stories. Maybe, maybe not. But in any case, the book that we know as James is actually the book of Yaakov, or Jacob. He was very, very Jewish. I mean, he obviously was Jewish, but at the same time, his style and background, he, he, he ties very heavily into his Jewish uh, depths here. And uh, we do, although there are at least four Jameses in the New Testament, we believe he's the, for lots of very good uh, defendable reasons, that he was James, the brother of the Lord, the actual descendant of uh, uh, Joseph and Mary, obviously after Christ was born. And uh, we went through all the scriptures supporting that last time. I won't rebuild all of that. He, his brothers, apparently, the scripture tells us twice that they were unbelievers until after the resurrection. And uh, James and Jude in the New Testament, we believe, were written by uh, descendants of uh, Joseph and Mary, actual half-brother of Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph wasn't his father. Well, I got myself in deep yogurt in that one, didn't I? Yeah. Um, I'll get letters. Yes, okay. But anyway... Um, <laughs> But uh, James not only uh, became a believer after the resurrection, but he quickly emerges in leadership of the uh, church at Jerusalem. Paul, in his letters, when he alludes to people that came to him from the church of Jerusalem, he says they came from James. It becomes almost synonymous with that. We know it was, uh, his letter was not written uh, after 62 AD because that's when he was martyred. But uh, some people believe he might even have been written very, very early. There's evidences several ways, and it's not critical to our purpose here. And, uh, of course, it's written, as it says, to the 12 tribes. It's a, and yet it's for all of us, but it, ha- it has a very, very Jewish linkage and flavor and so forth. And it really deals, it's not in conflict with Paul. Many people superficially reading the letter feel that somehow it's antithetical to the teachings of Paul. Not so. A um, little different perspective. Uh, James emphasizes faith as the starting point for the Christian, but it should reflect itself in deeds a life of wholehearted obedience to the law to the extent that we have faith in Jesus. And uh, then that all leads to maturity, a goal of perfection and wholeness in the Christian character is one of the emphasis here. And last time we, we uh, got as far as verse 12, we talked about, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now, we don't talk much. One of the things we hammered at last time, I just to warm us up again, get us focused, one of the great tragedies in the evangelical community is that we tend to uh, overemphasize salvation by grace, but we fail to really focus on rewards uh, to them that uh, uh, respond in obedience to what God really wants us to do. And there's an enormous body of scripture 
that has to do with rewards. Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me. And we, uh, it's, it's amazing as you study traffic in the Christian community and you, and you read and, and watch how rarely, occasionally but not often, people really focus on rewards. They, somehow some people get the impression, well, that's wrong incentives. We do that because we love him. Yes, but he's going to give you a crown for them that love him. So point is, there are rewards. Uh, one of the things that I think James is going to give us plenty of opportunity to focus on is the fact that there are rewards. There are at least, there are five specific crowns listed in the scripture. Now the question is, can you lose your crowns? Revelation 3.11, Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, hold fast what the, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. You apparently can lose a crown. And by the way, that was sent to, said to the church at Philadelphia. Very provocative. So there are crowns. You can lose them. The crown of life is spoken of several places. The crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, and then an incorruptible crown. We went through all that last time. I encourage you, if those are not familiar to you, to do a little study. I don't believe there's just five. There are five specific ones listed. I think there are many other crowns. Um, there, are, uh, there are allusions to crowns in general. And what do you do with these crowns when you get them? You lay them on the glassy sea as we see it in, in uh, Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and so forth. We, each of us, have an appointment before the Bema Seat of Christ. And we are going to be uh, receive the things as appropriate uh, done in our body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad, it says. so. And uh, so many of us will have profit, many of us will have loss. And uh, I think, frankly, there's going to be many surprises before that the Bema seat. I think there are going to be many, many prominent Christian personalities that may be surprised by uh, the absence or relative absence of, of rewards. I think Conversely, there are going to be people you've never heard of or didn't even know existed that are going to be probably at the head of the list. One of the ones that uh, I love to think about is the thief that died on the cross that was saved. We all know the story. I would imagine if you ask him what his expectation was, uh, he'd be just glad to be there. You know, I mean, there he was. He was saved seconds probably or minutes, whatever, before he passed away. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He confessed his sin, acknowledged that he needed the Savior, and asked the Savior to save him. And he did. He's got assurance of salvation from the Lord himself. Now, I'll bet you when he gets up there, he'd say, boy, I, I don't expect anything. I just, I just snuck in before the door slammed, you know. And I bet you the Lord will set him aside and march before him the thousands of people on death row or wherever that came to a saving faith by the testimony of the dying thief. People he's never met, has no knowledge of, but I suspect would accrue to his account. And uh, I suspect we're all in that boat. I think we're all due to be surprised. Some up, some down, whatever. I'm fascinated with the, the song that was sung uh, in the uh, worship in the interval there. Jesus wrote seven report cards in Revelation 2 and 3. What's interesting about those seven report cards, each one had some good news, some bad news. What's interesting about them is every one of those churches were surprised. Some didn't think they were doing so well, they did great. Others thought they were doing pretty good and they were in big trouble. And I think we all can take a lesson. I think we need to work very hard to see ourselves through his eyes. And I think the book of James will help us do that. There are 60 imperatives in just 108 verses in the book of James, the book of Jacob. More than any other book in the New Testament. And I think as we take this study, we should not carry away do's and don'ts from the book of James. I think what he's really after is for us 
to develop a perspective. If you're in business, you're a businessman or a strategist of any kind, you know that information or details you can always acquire if you know what questions to ask. The precious thing, the deciding thing between victory and failure is perspective, the strategic perspective. If you have that, the other pieces will fall into place. And I think as we go through this book, we want to keep our antenna up on not the details per se, not that they're not critical, but the big lesson to carry away is the perspective. Well, that gets us down to where we start tonight, verse 13. Let no man say, uh, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. You hear that all the time, you know, God's tempting me. No, no, God isn't tempting you, not in the way it's used here. When someone asks me, when I'm feeling sorrow or pain or some need, and a friend asks me, what danger or threat is there in your life so that I might pray for you? I would probably answer something like, pray for my illness, or that my financial needs might be met, or some people would stop doing the things they're doing to me, or something of that nature. I would tend to think of having the injuries that are afflicted upon me by some trial. My foremost thought is for the trial to be ended. James is, going, is insisting on a radical change in attitude. Radical change in our thinking. Where are the real dangers in your life? And they're not medical, financial, personal relationship in the usual sense, no. The most serious dangers are not what is being done to me, but rather the wrong that may be done by me. That's his point. Should pray for me that I don't fail in this trial. The temptation here is used in the sense of testing or trial, and it is never correct to attribute temptation to the infinitely holy one, the one who has called us to the holiness of life. God would rather seek to induce us to flee from temptation and take the path of holy subjection to his will, temptation in the usual sense. Now, one of the things I want you to notice as James goes through here, the way he deals with this is to assert the facts of God's nature and God's will, and then let these facts speak of the dynamics of the temptation. Jesus taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation. That is, don't leave us to our own dangerous ways that would expose us to the pressures of the enemy of our souls. That's really what he's saying. Makes sense. But going on to verse 14. James continues, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. See, we're tempted not by God, but by the strength of our own lustful desires. We are deceiving ourselves by our craving for self-satisfaction, self-gratification. And by the way, uh, this drawn away term is a hunting term. It's the term that would use as, as if being dragged away by a predator, if you will. And there is a real danger in temptation. The real effect of temptation is sin leading to death. And we need to reckon ourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. We've got to turn it around. And Romans 6 Verse 11 through 13, you can put your notes to follow through on that if you like. Now, lust dwells upon and brings forth uh, sin. Lust 
dwelt upon brings forth sin. Having a thought isn't the problem. What do you do with the thought? To have some natural biological reaction instantaneously is nature at work. But nature is something to rise above. It's lust dwelt upon that brings forth sin. And remember, as Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's the staggering thing about the Sermon on the Mount. You'll discover, we'll notice as we go through here, James, as he talks on these subjects, is never very far from the Sermon on the Mount. He's very Jewish, very connected to the Old Testament, but also very close, as you will see, to the Sermon on the Mount. And the interesting thing is, most you hear so many people talk, say, well, I, I abide by the Ten Commandments. Boy, I wish they did, but uh, that's their view, okay? I live by the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, you poor guy. Ten Commandments are tough enough. Sermon on the Mount makes them worse. Because Jesus um, inter- reinterprets thou sh- you know, Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. But I say he that thinks in his heart, anger. And doesn't say without cause, by the way. That's the softening of the translators. In other words, the Ten Commandments, with the exception of coveting, which is sort of a gray area, Ten Commandments are overt, measurable, witnessable actions. But Jesus reinterprets those to talk about intents of the heart. You know, the scripture says that only God knows the intents of the heart. Verse 15. James continues, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth what? Death. We read that. We give intellectual assent to it. And yet we don't fear sin enough. We strive for spiritual maturity. Well, how mature are you? Well, how much do you hate sin? When you hate sin as much as God hates sin, you're getting closer. Huh? Sin indulged upon, not just sin stumbling, sin indulged upon leads to death. Ezekiel 18.4 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now the principle that's being established here is that, is that the minding of the flesh, in Romans 8.6 it says, to be carnally minded, to be minding of the flesh, uh, is death. And the main thrust we're encountering here, very uncomfortable though it may be, it is never safe to trifle with sin. It's interesting, David was frequently under attack or in danger. He not only prayed for the protection from his enemies or his attackers, understandably, but he prayed for protection from sin. When we read the Psalms, I want you to be sensitive to the two sides of the coin. Yes, he prayed for protection against those that were pursuing him. But he also prayed for his own conduct that it wouldn't lead to sin. Boy, can we learn from that. Uh, Let's take a look at a few of those. Let's take a look at uh, Psalm 25. It's a good place to start. Psalm 25. Uh, Well, pick up verses 4 and 5. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths, lead me in thy truth, and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. And you get down to uh, verse 20. Oh, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in thee. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. The idioms he's dealing with here are his conduct, not just putting up a wall of fire between me and those bad guys. Follow me? He's concerned that he doesn't act inappropriately. We'll see some others before we go. See, what we should be praying 
isn't just, Lord, keep me safe, but rather, Lord, keep me pure. We don't think those ways. We tend to think of the externals. We, think of the, we tend to think of, again, our comfort, our need for fill in the blank, whatever, rather than to pray that the Lord help me respond to all of that the way he would have us respond. And so, um, James continues, verse 16, Do not err, my beloved brethren. Now, you can make errors several ways. You don't want to be deceived about temptation, but you also don't want to be deceived by his good gifts either. Verse 17. Because James continues now talking about the other side of the coin. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I want you to notice in verse 17 the very first word. Every, not most, not some. Every, every good thing. Whatever's in your life, whatever crosses your path, whatever suddenly arrives on your horizon. That's good. You know where it comes from because it doesn't have any exceptions. Where does it come from? It comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. He is constant. This alludes to the immutability of God. His his unchangeableness. And that's something we don't talk a lot about, but we should. Many people presume from the propaganda that the God of Islam, the Allah of Islam, is just their word for the God of the Old Testament. Not true. The word Allah is not translated. When, when Quran is translated in other languages, Allah is not translated. The Allah is not the Arabic word for God. It's the Arabic word for the God. It's a specific God. It's the moon God. That's its origin. That's still its symbol on all, its, uh, all the mosques in the world. But the real point is, Allah is presented by the Quran as um, capricious. He's the unknowable one. You can never tell what he's going to do. That's their concept. The God of the Old Testament is the opposite of that. He makes and keeps his promises. He regards that faithfulness as one of his principal characteristics. It's emphasized uh, continually throughout his word. So he has no variableness nor shadow of turning. But this father of lights, you know, as a a physicist, you can imagine, I'm not going to let this one go. Um, I will spare you the equations... But for each of the attributes of God, there is a parallel kind of equation that has to do with light. When light goes through certain media, it slows down, but when it leaves that media, it speeds up again to the speed of light. If I'm the speed of light in different media, is a constant. Well, the point is, that implies an infinite source of energy in a sense. There is a concept of light when it's collimated, that's when the beams are exactly parallel. And you can do that with lenses, synthetically, obviously, but when you do that, you're placing the virtual origin of that light at infinity. You follow me? And that's what it says here. You see, this word for variableness is paralage, which is the Greek word from which we get the word parallax. Our father of lights, in whom there is no parallax. He is infinite, is what that would say to a physicist. And a perfectly collimated light is, has its apparent source infinity. Now that leads, that gives me an excuse to share with you a, uh, an analogy, a dear friend of mine, Dr. Alex Metherell, who uh, came to the Lord during my first revelation study 
back uh, 100 years ago uh, in Newport Beach. Uh, and since has been very prominent in the Christian community for a lot of reasons. But he shared, he's also is one of the world-class um, scientists in the area of imaging and optics and such. He pointed out to me, I knew a lot about holograms, but I never saw the biblical analogy. And he's the one who pointed that out to me. Uh, a hologram is a form of lensless photography. It's a way of getting an image with no lenses. In fact, uh, the way you do this is if you have an object... And uh, you illuminate the object with a laser, but you set it up so that same laser light can reflect from the object on some film, and your laser can directly hit that film. And what the film records is where that light intersects, what they call interference, or what we might consider as intersections of the beams. And uh, when you do this, you go through this procedure, you expose the film, and you develop it, you hold it up to natural light, and it looks like a darkroom mistake. It's a cloudy piece of film. It looks like something you overexpose somehow. There's nothing there. It has no desirability in natural light. I was at, uh, in 1963, when Emmett Leith invented the laser. He did it at the University of Michigan. I remember meeting him in his laboratory one time, so this is all very vivid to me. What you do with this piece of film, you set it up again after it's processed, and you illuminate it with a laser that created it in the first place, and the, the uh, piece of film becomes like a window into a three-dimensional space. You look at this piece of film, and you're looking into the space, and you see a three-dimensional image of whatever it was that was there. And what do I mean by a three-dimensional image? Well, let's imagine that I had an unusual pendant or something, or like this microphone here on my shirt. And let's assume I held my Bible up in front of the camera, and you took a picture. A picture gives you a two-dimensional image, a spatial image. And when you develop that and look at it, you would see me with this... Bible in the way, you would not be able to see the pendant or the microphone, right? But if it was a laser, if it was a hologram, you could move your eye around to the side and look behind this and see the pendant. I use that to explain what I mean by a three-dimensional image. The, uh, the hologram is actually what they call a Fourier transform of the image. It's, a three, it's, a, it's, it's, it's in the frequency domain rather than space-time domain, and that's all a way of conversion. But the point is, what's interesting about the hologram is in natural light, it has no form nor comeliness that you desire it. But you illuminate it with the laser that created it, and you see an image. Okay? There's something else interesting about the hologram. Since that's true, as you move around, you can look through a three-dimensional world. If you cut out a segment of the film, you don't lose the image. Because you can look around the hole to see whatever was there. You follow me? It doesn't stay quite as sharp. You lose a little what they call resolution. But now, you say, what's this got to do with anything, Chuck? Well... The Bible is like a hologram. If you look at the Bible in natural light, it's a collection of old stories and legends and whatever. There's, it doesn't have any integrity to the natural man. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, because they are spiritually discerned. But you take the Bible, and you illuminate it by the light that created it in the first place, the Holy Spirit... And what do you get? You get an image. An image of what? Jesus Christ. Exactly right. In natural light, there's no beauty. In Isaiah 53, uh, verse 2 says that. In, uh, he has no beauty that we should desire him. In that, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. And uh, it's interesting, too, the Bible. Have you ever noticed how it's organized? It's organized along communication engineering lines. If you are a communication engineer trying to design a communication system... 
and you're trying to resist either noise or even worse, you're trying to avoid the impact of hostile jamming, you do certain things. One of the things you do, the channel width that you've got available, you take your message and you spread it across the available bandwidth. That makes it harder to jam. That's what it's called spread, uh, spread spectrum techniques and so forth. Well, it's interesting. The Bible does that exactly th- same thing. Where is the chapter on baptism? Where is the chapter on salvation? You know, any of these key ideas are not in one place. They're distributed like a gas law or like a hologram through the whole thing. Tear out a page of the Bible and you have not lost visibility of Jesus Christ. Every key doctrine, every key truth is spread. You may lose some resolution, some detail, but you don't lose the image of God's plan of redemption, the incarnate word, the one that paid for our sin. And that's not accidental in Isaiah 28. He declares twice, I declare my word precept on precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, Line upon line, here a little, there a little, and goes on. God has deliberately designed it this way. And I'm beginning to believe that these Bible codes, and I don't mean just the equidistant letter sequences, which are so controversial, I'm talking about the macro codes as well as the micro codes and the rest, are authentications that we have in front of us, a message system that indeed came from outside our space-time, you can prove it. But let's stay on this thing here. By the way, on a hologram, if you illuminate that hologram with a laser of a different frequency, you get a distorted image. When you illuminate this by some spirit other than the spirit of God, you will get fraud and deceit, a distorted image. Isn't that interesting? I think it's, you know, just had to share that with you. Anyway, I did get a little off the subject, but I, that's all, that all has to do with verse 17 and the parallax term. We'll move on to verse... I'll tear tear you away from that analogy to go to verse 18. Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You and I, I think, remember from Peter's letters and other things that we are born of the word, right? You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.